This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Hi, everybody. It's my pleasure to introduce Dr. Andy Sarkin. Um, he is the Director of Evaluation Research at Health Services Research Center, which is here at UCSD. And he has been evaluating adult and TAY programs um, here in San Diego and, and uh, as well as across the state for over 10 years. Andy? Thanks, Kim. Hello, everybody. Thanks so much for joining our collaborative learning session here today at our first Techie Summit. So today we're going to be talking about, in this session, using evaluation tools to drive quality improvement and measuring our progress and quality improvement for our behavioral health care programs focused on our transitional age youth. So we're going to do a quick introduction to quality improvement, talk about some examples of quality improvement, look at a basic strategy for positive change, and we're going to look at the PDSA cycle, the plan, um, do, study, act cycle for quality improvement, which just kind of gives us a framework of how we might move forward with these sorts of activities. We'll discuss setting smarter goals for our TAE programs, measuring quality improvement, and we'll look at a quality improvement planning worksheet that hopefully might be one of the tools you take home from here and use back uh, in your own counties and programs with your own groups. And then again, I want to save plenty of time for your comments and sharing of ideas. So briefly, quality improvement involves systematic actions that lead to measurable improvements in the quality of services, access to services, client outcomes, and or client satisfaction. In order to improve your program or county services, your client outcomes, client satisfaction, we implement manageable changes in our current system. And when I say current system, of course, I'm talking about things like the inputs, which would be the people, what staff are available, do we have that type of counselor, that type of peer, Um, the information, the materials, and also the regulations and rules that come down from the state are part of the system that we work within and improve, both at the county level and at all levels. We want to improve what are the rules because that's going to lead to quality improvement. And the processes are going to be the activities that are carried out by the program, how these activities are done, when, where, who provides the services and activities. And of course, the important part of the system here that is going to be the outcomes, the results of these quality improvements that we do. Why should we engage in quality improvement? Well, you've already, of course, this morning been hearing some things about this, but just to kind of review some of the things we've been talking about, engaging in quality improvement for your programs is going to obviously hopefully lead to improved outcomes. The most obvious one, improved services provided, improved client health, improved client satisfaction. But also, it helps programs and county systems in other ways, such as improved efficiency, such as the reduction or elimination of unnecessary or less effective services or processes that may draw your time and resources, avoided costs, and improved ability to anticipate and solve problems, 
before they occur and improved ability to recognize problems early on and address them more promptly by building that infrastructure of quality improvement and really getting into a mind as a program and a county of continuous quality improvement. And doing that, of course, is going to improve your program and county reputation because everyone looks to programs that focus on quality improvement as appealing to funders, to community supporters, to the participants in the program themselves. Some people so much think that everyone is against change, but what I think we so often see in the evaluations of quality improvement that we've experienced is both the staff and the people being served enjoy and want to be a part of quality improvement. And this can take on many forms such as adding a substance abuse counselor to a transitional age youth program that has a high prevalence of addiction problems, or reducing wait times to improve satisfaction of people getting services at a TAE program. It also could mean increased outreach to targeted groups who are not using a program as much as expected. And it can even be things like we're doing here this weekend, where the state has provided us resources to get together our TAE programs and provide technical training to enhance the staff's ability to utilize outcomes information for individual treatment, and in our case, for program improvement as a whole also. So... All these things uh, certainly had in common that we're talking about implementing positive change. You identified an area for creating a positive change, whether it be housing, employment, progress in recovery, and then you set goals for improvement. Today we're going to talk about setting smarter goals for improvement. You create and implement a strategy for change, monitor the process of implementing change, measure the impact on your goal or outcomes, which you all seem to refer to some aspect of that, formally or informally, that you're monitoring what the impact is. And then, of course, I'm sure you will be thinking about how you might disseminate the results for learning. And we're going to talk a little bit today how to organize things using this plan, do, study, act cycle on my next slide. One thing I just want to note here is um, to remind us to make sure to involve stakeholders at all, process, at all stages of these processes, not only because they really are your experts, and I mean all types of stakeholders, of course, the people we serve, the people who are on the ground giving those services, the other staff, as well as county administrators and program leaders and those kinds of folks. You want to make sure that you're involving all these people when you're trying to implement positive change, because not only only is that going to make your change more informed and um, more likely to succeed, but also it's important to get buy-in when you're doing change because we also, as I alluded to earlier, while our experience of change in retrospect often tends to be positive, people are often very apprehensive of how is this going to affect me and what's it going to be like to change through this quality improvement. So the plan, do, study, act cycle is, some of you may have seen this, it's a very basic, commonly used model. Again, just as a way to kind of organize our thinking because oftentimes when we try to, as a county or as a program, do quality improvement, sometimes we have a lot of voices at the table and are going in a lot of different directions with great ideas and 
And sometimes it helps to force ourselves into a framework to make sure that we focus on something, make a plan, and move forward. So as I'm suggesting here, to plan, create our objective with smart goals, look at um, and these are the things, these are questions when you're having this meeting of, okay, as a t- group of TAY programs or as a county, what are we going to do? Bring people together and ask them these questions. What's our objective? And how can we put that in terms of a SMART goal? What predictions do we have of the impact of doing this quality improvement? Who, what, when, where will be needed? And are those resources available? Is this feasible? And to create a data collection plan of how we're going to monitor the implementation. And then we do. We carry out that plan. We carry out our data collection plan by documenting our observations. And we record data. We study, analyze that data, compare the results to our earlier predictions, and summarize what was reflected on what was learned. And of course, you can't, when you have that information in front of you, then you get pushed right into the next stage of action, where you want to talk with the group now about what changes should be made to what we have done. You know, so we've done it, we planned it, we carried it out. Now we've seen how it's worked out. What changes should be made? And kind of prepare for our next cycle. We may say, it's working perfectly. Don't change anything. That's fine. Or we may say, hire what... Actually, It's working great for the people who have access to the employment counselor, but still half the youth don't have a, uh, there isn't enough employment counselors that half the youth still don't have access. So let's hire more. That is often the way that things roll up. Now I'd like to skip to SMART goals. This is something that to some folks might seem kind of obvious, but... I work with so many goal sheets, so many evaluations where when you actually look through these, so I'm going to show you real ones, that um, it's often really hard to make sure we follow all these things if we don't think about it. But if you think about it, it's really not hard at all to just say, okay, does our goal have these qualities? If not, we can easily add that quality. So the qualities that we want to make sure that our goals have are that we want them to be specific, we don't want them to be vague. We, don't, we want them to, and we'll, we'll look at a couple examples here. We want them to be measurable. So there has to be some way to measure whether we're getting to our goal, whether we're making progress. They have to be attainable. Again, seems obvious, but oftentimes we look at goals in our MHSA plans or places like that, and I do have the um, benefit of looking across all the different county plans and all those sorts of things, and there's so many great plans and everything, but then sometimes snuck in there will be a goal of, how could they possibly do that? Relevant, of course, to our goals and our what our program is designed to do and who we want to help, and time-bound. That, of course, it's important to not just say we're going to increase satisfaction, but back to specific, we're going to increase it by, um, by a certain time. And... And when I say increase, that was a good example of me not being specific. I said we're going to increase satisfaction. So if I put that as a goal in our meeting, somebody else should say, 
well, wait a minute, which satisfaction? Are you talking overall satisfaction? Are you talking parent satisfaction or um, youth satisfaction? All those questions. So, um, smarter goals are also evaluated and reviewed. So, the evaluated and reviewed means that we're going to certainly evaluate whether we're making progress towards the goals, not just make them, and then say, okay, that, that's our county goal. There it is in paper. There it is in everybody's contracts. Then we're going to monitor and actually make sure we make progress, and we're going to review our goals because our needs may change, our populations may change. The way that employment works for youth may change because of some national regulations or things like that that we just can't be stuck in when we set a goal, even if it's, you know, if it's a few years out or such, we have to still be examining one year out and two years out. Is this goal at three years out? Is that still relevant? Does it still meet our other criteria, frankly, of being relevant and, and uh, attainable? So let's do a quick exercise for fun here of just evaluating a few of these. And this is a real goal of a county. Let's go through the S-M-A-R-T. So, specific. Is it specific? Yeah, I'd say it's quite specific. Um, is it measurable? Yeah, I'd say it passes that. Is it attainable? Yeah, and, and the depends is maybe a bit optimistic in terms of it depends on us really doing something that's never been done in the history of behavioral health, of having no suicides in that group in any population of any place. I don't think. <laughs> Maybe there's some country or place I'm unaware of where it's completely unheard suicide doesn't happen. Um, but uh, it's not so attainable. And so, and again, that, while it's noble... It's a, and and, it, and I, they're th- I, know, I know their thinking behind it is, well, no, not one is not acceptable. We, by saying some number, we're saying that number is acceptable. So you can see the toughness there. But yeah, that's a challenge with this one. So is it relevant to our TAE programs? Sure. And is it time-based? Is it associated with a, when we're going to do this by? Yeah, it really isn't so time-based. I mean, you, of course, with many of these, you could say it's implied. Well, it's implied, yes, we're gonna, right away. But, um, yeah, it could be, oh, as we heard the VA do recently, oh, we thought we were going to reduce the homelessness to this much by this time, but we're going to push that off. And so that's, you know, they, they did and that's because they did make a smart goal, that they did put themselves time-based, and so they couldn't just say, oh, well, sometime we'll accomplish that low level of homelessness. How about this one? We will reduce wait times for transitional-age youth mental health clients by 2017. Is it specific? Thank you. Perfect. That's exactly what I was hoping folks would say. Which wait times? Wait times for a first appointment? Wait times while you're sitting there in the waiting room? Which wait times? You have to be specific when you're in the, the world of wait times here. And, and for this one, I want to know by how much. You know, are you going to reduce it by one day uh, out of two weeks? I don't know if that's a big noble goal. Or are we going to reduce it for by two minutes out of sitting in the waiting room for an hour? Not much of a thing. So, 
Um, is it measurable? Once, so, but that, so that, that really, once if you don't have a specific goal, of course, that makes it hard to do all the other parts. So let's say we made this specific, and we were indeed talking about reducing times for until the first appointment um, by five days. So when they call up, make an appointment, before it was two weeks until they got their first appointment, we're going to reduce that by five days. So just to put the, right, so we can put the other ones in context, if that were the case, would that be measurable? Yep, as long as we get specific. Would it be attainable? Right. Right. Yeah, and so it is a thought exercise. And so this one on the attainable, you probably should be thinking exactly. Well, it kind of depends on the program, depends how far we have to move, and how unreasonable that two weeks was in the first place. You know, what if there just are things that take two weeks, and you can do all the quality improvements you want, but there's systematic. We always have to look at these in the systematic regulations and things that may need to also change, no matter how hard people work. So looking at your system, is it relevant? Yep. And is it time-based? Mm -hmm. Yep, by 2017. And you're right, it, it would be good to have a start date like we have in this one. So let's look at this one, one more. There will be a 10% increase from 2015 to 2017 in the overall satisfaction with services as measured by the MISIP Consumer Perception Survey, um, the, that uh, many, I'm sure many of you are familiar with the state consumer survey that gets put out every six months that we have all our folks fill in their satisfaction with our programs a variety of aspects including take clients so this could be our goal 10% increase from, that, from the time we administer it in 2015 to the time we administer it in 2017 so is that specific? Is it measurable? Is it attainable? And there's always a tiny bit of a question there, depending on what you're going to do and how high the satisfaction score is already. But 10%, gosh, it kind of sounds okay to me. Um, and um, is it relevant? Yep. And is it time-based? So this would be an example of a goal that would seem to meet all the criteria. So, speaking of driving continuous pro quality improvement, some of you might remember this scene from The Office, though that getting a little dated there now with being a few years in the past. Using evaluation data to drive continuous program quality improvement is much like using the GPS in your car. So I you'd like this as an analogy of where, where they got themselves by just... But with just the GPS, they ended up in a bad place. And so you can't just depend on the data or expect data to actually be a quality improvement itself. But data is so important just to guide you. And if you don't use it to, to see where you are, where you're going, uh, you may not end up where you want to be. And 
it doesn't act, and you shouldn't be too driven by the data without, because I'm about to start looking at data, so I give this preface that I don't want you to be too driven by data without always thinking. Always think, why, why are we getting results like this? What do we know by, again, talking to our stakeholders, talking to people involved in the program, and not blindly using data? So, few examples of measures that I'm just going to run through quickly, just kind of to get us thinking about these. So I like to differentiate our process versus outcome measures a little bit, which a lot of folks, which you hear from a lot of folks in evaluation. And so the process measures, those are kind of the how we get there, the things that we do, such as our outreach and engagement to have people getting the services in the first place. Where people are, why people are getting discharged and how they're getting referred to housing or employment or the other services, you know, how they get there, not just whether they get there. Involvement of family and friends, medication and treatment adherence, satisfaction with services. And then, of course, what we often focus on more are outcome measures, such as the mental health as rated by a clinician, or what we like to look at a lot, and I think in Tay it's especially relevant, I think it's very good to have some self-reported client-centered measures where we see how they are expressing how they're feeling and bring them into the uh, discussion more. And we look at changes in how much people improve on outcomes, such as a score on some mental health measure. I put a couple abbreviations there that aren't important. You may have heard of the MORES, Milestones Recovery Scale, and the IMR. I think it's tomorrow that Todd Gilmer is going to be talking about that in his talk as one of the measures that uh, is perhaps good for Tay. And so oftentimes we look at metrics such as the percentage of people who improve significantly on such a measure. And so just looking at a couple examples, so from our mental health satisfaction improvement program uh, survey, the MISIP, the Consumer Perception Survey, it has items such as my beliefs were considered as part of the services that I received, that people rate on a scale of one to five. How much do you agree with this statement? Actually, the scale is slightly different, but the idea is the same. They have a slightly larger scale. Um, And I felt comfortable about asking questions about treatment and medication. So if we had a quality improvement program that was focused on increase, maybe it's a staff training on cultural competence. So we have decided we want to more take into account the beliefs of our Tay folks who are in our program, and so we're going to implement cultural competence trainings, and this would be an outcome we might look for here, right? Um, The answers from the people getting services before and after we implement that on whether their beliefs were considered a part of the services they received. But again, I I note that as a process measure because their beliefs could be considered to the utmost. That doesn't mean they're getting better, so that's different from outcomes. It's process. We do believe if they believe that their beliefs are being considered and we're taking them into account, we think that's going to lead to better outcomes, but that's a separate question. Well, I guess just to to maybe um, question that the way that you're drawing that distinction a little bit, um, I would say that depending on the intervention, any of the measures that you have listed as process could also be outcomes if you're trying to increase um, client empowerment, for example, then empowerment is the outcome. Exactly. Um, 
So, I mean, they could definitely be flipped. But just to, I mean, just to point out, too, that, like, using sort of very conventional clinical measures like symptoms level is conventionally what's done, um, right, and is not necessarily um, a, you know, patient-centered outcome. So just to think about that. One other thing I just wanted to say um, is... You know, colleagues of mine who have been um, working a long time in, in evaluating like the recovery orientation of programs at Yale um, have observed the phenomenon of as programs become more recovery oriented, um, clients become less satisfied and more critical of the services. Mm-hmm. So just again, introducing this idea of thinking very critically about the measures that you're using and what they actually might reflect, and that in some cases, the opposite of what we would maybe conventionally be looking for could be a good thing. Yes. And that is a, so important and a huge part of what we need to be thinking about. And yes, I did use especially, almost purposely, generic measures for this talk, like hospitalization, which, uh, we, of course, we want to be thinking more of our recovery-oriented me- measures, uh, not just the symptom sort of stuff. So these process measures, changing a process still can be the outcome of a quality improvement. So it's a little bit confusing that way that sometimes the quality improvement that you're doing is a change in a process. So, of course, you're monitoring the process and the change in the process in terms of whether uh, you've achieved getting there. And, and so and a couple of classic examples of outcomes are things like, um, again, restricting to myself the what we could get from the MISIP <laughs> that I used. My mental health has improved. That might be something we look for changing as a uh, new intervention. And I deal more effectively with daily problems. A couple more quick examples. Reduced inpatient admissions. So this would be example for a performance improvement project. So where we're looking at the red is before the performance improvement project, and the blue is after the performance improvement project, where, um, where what we see there, of course, is before the performance improvement project, we weren't seeing a big difference in hospitalization before and after this um, services for the, uh, I, I'd say it's a classic sort of clinical service, and then after this performance improvement program that, let's say, is putting um, peer tays into the program that try to catch problems early and try to uh, use other try to avoid hospitalization that would be that was our pip and yes and this if this were the data we got that would show that uh, it had a great effect in reducing inpatient admissions and I like this example better being more recovery oriented that um, this would be an example of the performance improvement projects that a couple folks here were just alluding to is the kind of uh, result we'd be looking for. That before the PIP, yes, transitional age youth were coming into the program and getting jobs. More of them had jobs than, other, than um, before the program. But after our performance improvement program where we added these specialized counselors or did these structural changes that you guys described, now we went from similar before the program to the blue seeing much more, many more folks getting hired. And of course there's some we probably would not expect 100%. The last thing I have to show you before our discussion is an example of a worksheet 
that we developed as a collaborative tool to uh, help with quality improvement in our programs. And so if you look at the very last page of this, right before your notes, and so this is a quality improvement planning worksheet, and it's hopefully much of it is self-explanatory because it wouldn't be a very good tool if it needed an instruction manual to go along with it. But let's go ahead and just talk about it for a moment here. So this quality improvement planning worksheet, it reminds us of our plan, do, study, act cycle and our SMART goals. Again, hoping that this is kind of, you're sitting in a meeting and this is a tool to kind of help keep the group thinking in perhaps a certain uh, way that we think is constructive for quality improvement discussions. And uh, well, of course, with your own styles. And so we uh, asked just a few questions at the top there. What is our goal? Of course, making it a smart goal. Why was this goal identified? And what are we trying to accomplish? So, of course, that's often more the longer-term uh, outcome that might not be measured so much of why this goal was identified and what we're trying to accomplish, such as we may be trying to accomplish... Um, having a more in, uh, ha having better that what we're trying to accomplish is better access for transitional age youth in general but how but the goal is going to be more specific such as increase access for transitional um, increase the uh, number of transitional age youth attending mental health programs by 10% over the next year through our outreach and engagement but the why was the school identified? We're trying to accomplish. We feel that they are underserved. Overall, how are we going to measure progress toward that goal? And of course, that's where we want to make sure we have to go back and relook at our goal. If we're like, well, I don't know how we're going to monitor progress. Well, how, okay, we know we want to do this, but how are we actually going to measure it? Maybe we need to re-examine the goal if it's unmeasurable. Though some things are. Some things are very important to do. It doesn't mean that everything is measurable, but again, within this framework of quality improvement, it's most constructive. And I, th I think it's, uh, it's very difficult when you, to think, as you start to work on it to think of examples of things that, are, that meet all the other criteria and are not measurable. So, and we use our worksheet there to figure out what our tasks are. Some of you may have heard of a, the concept of a Gantt chart, and this is like kind of a simple in-the-meeting sort of Gantt chart, for those of you who are familiar with that term, where basically you talk about what are the tasks, what are the start dates and end dates, do those make sense in terms of we have to, of course, not start the trainings until the training materials are prepared, things like that, and who are going to be the folks responsible what is our end result or deliverable, and tracking our current status. And so this is how we would track and check in on progress for a quality improvement. It's about time for our discussion. Um, so I'm just going to really briefly point out that, um, so for one example, we we might uh, find that in our program uh, there, that there's more substance abuse than we expected even after being in treatment for some time. Many of our Tay are still using substances significantly. And so for our program improvement, our goal is to reduce the number of Tay in the program 
who are using illegal drugs or alcohol by 20% by um, 2017. Yes, I hit them all. <laughs> and, uh, and so, and so that come, where did it come from? Came from counselors out there. We were in meetings. Counselors are saying, gosh, I have all these folks in my program who, after six months, they're still out using a lot of substances, though they're actually participating in other parts of the program. And I think that's interfering with their recovery. So how are we going to measure progress towards that goal? We are going to look at both clinician and, and or we're going to, um, that we can look at clinician and client report of using substances. And we'll say that if either the clinician or the client says a person is using substances at the time of assessment, that that leads to the percentage of people percent in the program who are currently using substances. And we'll look at that metric again later to see if that has reduced. The percentage, that was our goal, the percentage of people in the program who are using substances. And of course, there could be all kinds of uh, other influences on that change besides our quality improvement, but that's what we are doing. And so, and then, so for the folks involved, we would uh, then draw out, so we have to hire the substance, so we're gonna hire, our plan is to hire, our plan will be to hire a substance, uh, our task, sorry, will be to hire um, a new substance abuse counselor, and so we're at that hiring process. Lead person's gonna be the program director with a couple other administrative staff. We're gonna get that done quick over and within a month or two, and we'll track the status of that. Then the next task is going to be to design the new substance use uh, track and that will be done by the new substance abuse counselor with other staff members. It'll have its start date and end date, and so on through the implementation of starting the first groups with the participants and such. So that is all I had to say. I put up some discussion questions here that you should not at all feel tied to as far as the discussion questions. Um, go ahead and uh, I'd love for people to just share any comments, thoughts. We had, we've had some really great comments of people just kind of adding some to the, to the knowledge here. Um, yeah, uh, just a, you know, just an, an initial kind of discussion area would be mixed methods, quality improvement, so incorporating qualitative elements and kind of maybe a different ethos motivating that, so maybe more openness to actually sort of learning from clients about unexpected outcomes or just, you know, the mm -hmm. unexpected in general throughout the process. Um, I think another big advantage to, to having some qualitative component can be um, just other types of unexpected things. Um, that's information that you can lose when all you end up with at the end of a, you know, a PIP or an evaluation project is quantitative data. And partly that's because there's such high turnover, I think, often in community mental health settings. And so um, the person doing in charge of the PIP or in charge of the evaluation may think, oh, yeah, but I heard that. But if it's not documented somewhere, then that gets lost from kind of the institution's memory. And then, you know, efforts gets repeated or things that could really, like, inform improvement are lost. 
So just yeah, thanks. That. That's hugely important. And Austin, quality improvement, like we said, live is what did we learn? And we are definitely going to miss that just looking at numbers. So I, I, we use those numbers as examples, but I really highly recommend focus groups and open-ended sorts of questions as ways to really get at the impact that the quality improvement has outside of our rating scales. I just wanted to make a run. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, the, uh, I'm really curious because this is uh, a lot of what you do for a living, and I'm really curious in your expertise around how, how many goals at once. I mean, there, you can do one or two goals, which seems even, and this is very detailed around just those one or two goals and the process, and that's fairly involved and very much should be, I think. Um, and at the same time, how much is too much and how little is most effective and all of those sorts of things for quality improvement? Yeah, um, tough question. I'm going to say that it gets back, a word I used early on is manageable. And so it does a little bit depend on the teams and such. So San Diego County, for example, has a bunch of these goals going on as an organization. But the, you know, the informatics folks and team have their things going on. The workforce improvement, that's different people with their thing going on. And so they can all manage their goals within their own. And so I would say, that uh, we would not want to be having too many goals that we're kind of trying to formally do this with, especially if we are, if we're, if we are uh, perhaps haven't been following this sort of recipe so much and want to dive into, let's get together and do a quality improvement set of meetings and move forward with this. I definitely, in that case, would say, let's not start going too far afield and getting like four or five of these plans going and such and, and maybe have everybody contribute a number of goals and then that'll be one of the first things we decide. Okay, every, we'll get together, we'll have a brainstorming meeting coming up with a number of SMART goals and then we'll decide which ones to pursue. But then another part of that that, I, that I've noticed in terms of what happens in fact of just is that um, certainly for some goals while it is one goal to increase engagement of clients, there's often a multi-pronged plan that has you know, many different parts, such we're going to hire, hire a substance abuse counselor, we're going to provide extra trainings to our current counselors on how to, do, uh, how to deal with the integrated substance abuse problems, and we're going to start doing testing. Um, uh, we're going to engage parents with doing home testing for substances. Well, we aren't really going to know exactly which of those had the effect and that sometimes they call that a shotgun intervention in terms of that we have to be very clever in terms of knowing well we reached our goal we did reduce substance abuse but now as we want to continue that gets back to our cycle if we did all three of those things and then when it's time to study and act and plan that's one of the uh, great uses for the qualitative data for sure in terms of finding out which parts of the intervention work when you do these multiple things. So um, in mental health, is there a, or behavioral health, is there kind of an average time frame where you're looking at benchmarks? I know with the ANSA, they require you to do them every three to six months. Yep. The, you know, six months for the state one. You're exactly every on. year. So, I mean, how often do you really but, get good quality? Yeah, I you know that's something that actually... Uh, it's a really interesting question in program evaluation that people often, you know, we often ask in terms of how often to do the assessments. We keep on coming back to three or six months 
for programs that aren't super intensive, but then we always feel like we're lacking because someone always says, well, people's lives don't come in three or six month intervals. And you know, they've had housing changes, they've had hospitalizations. And so um, as a part of, uh, I have a statewide project to actually help us come to better ways to measure those things. And frankly, we wouldn't have that project if it wasn't for something that as a state, we really are still figuring out the rules. But after talking to a lot of folks for both change in assist, like when you're looking at change in satisfaction, it seems that we kind of agreed that six months and for looking at individuals, for sure, to go much longer than six months, it just is missing too much. And for the PIP, sometimes two years, you know, the two-year cycle doesn't seem enough. <laughs> right. Sometimes you feel like, if I just had one more year, I could really show some good improvements. Or Yes, especially when it comes to... Imp- to implementing big things countywide. That, and, and thanks for reminding me of that, that I was. I was thinking of our smaller program level county improvements, not that those are all small, but when we do something like, again, using another San Diego example, we are about to do a switch over to a new and better way of tracking our outcomes data. So it's, you know, so it's a big countywide change in project that's been, that was a long time in planning and will be a long time in transitioning and analyzing. I just kind of had a follow-up comment to that because um, we implement the ANSA in CANS as well. And one of the things that we have found, or I personally have found to be helpful because I do the CANS and the ANSA with all my clients, is um, we initially were doing six months and we were saying, I don't even have these clients for six months half the time, you know, um, because of the nature of the population and, you know, how often they fall out of services or they're moving because they don't have stable housing and things like that. So um, one of the things that I've started doing and that as a program we've started doing is we've made our, our, our behavioral or our treatment plan goals much shorter time frames. And then we update the cans every time they meet a goal. So it could be something where we're, we're updating the cans every two weeks because they've met that, you know, they've reduced their anxiety levels in school. So we can update those areas related to the cans. So we're doing them more frequently. And some of them might not change as much, you know, like, um, I don't know, their, their quality of sleep, you know, their sleep level might not be changing. But we can see that there's changes in these areas. And that's kind of helped us with our outcome measures and our data and being able to track client changes more. You know, and every time a client ends up in the hospital, we do the CANS again. Every time they get um, interacted with the juvenile justice system or the criminal justice system, you know, we, we update the CANS then too. So we might do it more frequently, but I find that the more practice that we have with doing it, and our organization's been using the CAN system for six to eight years or something like that, you know, so we, the more frequently we do it, the quicker and the better and the more effective we are at doing it as well. So it doesn't take as much time as, you know, your initial CANs, and when you're just updating certain items, it works, and it helps us with the quality measurement, and the county likes to see that, because we're a contract agent, so the county likes to see that, and it's a good measure of, okay, yeah, you're doing X, Y, and Z, so. Mm-hmm. And for uh, and many people, you, in many counties, they use the Moors in the exact same way that you just described. Um, well, when implementing um, quality improvement, um, it takes a organization and structure, which takes a lot of time. And uh, I know in our jobs, sometimes things are crazy. We don't necessarily always have time. But what I was wondering is, um, like, what 
you know, what kind of strategies or something that I could implement as a, as a program supervisor in um, getting the staff and the youth to buy into mm-hmm. these quality improvement projects? Because sometimes that's where I find the difficulty in sustaining, you know, goals that we have in mind. Yep. So uh, I mean, this is a little bit my, my opinion in terms of how, how I uh, think, how I've seen it be successful, is um, to find a few champions... And, and, the, and, and this doesn't have to be random selection, that there are a few other people, hopefully at the organization, who, who you can uh, talk to over the water cooler and find that you have a similar interest in this, or just bring it up at like more of a group meeting. But then, as opposed to saying we're going to hijack our big group meeting to do all this stuff, because yes, that might it might be difficult to engage people to get together a committee of interested four people. And that's like, you know, three or four um, to basically get together, brainstorm, maybe come up with some ideas for quality improvement to bring back to the other. So maybe to come up with some possible smart goals, then bring that back to the larger group and have the larger group buy into, oh yeah, this, this, looks like a, uh, this looks like something we should concentrate on, or this and this, because we don't want to concentrate on too many at once. And then, oh, and, and importantly, that group I'm talking about, though, is not the leadership I'm suggesting. It's somebody from the leadership, it's somebody who is a frontline clinician, who is there treating people every day. It's if you got one, a peer sort of person, or a community uh, representative, if there's someone like that involved in your program and so you have that diversity because the important thing of I'm suggesting that it's hard to do these things as a really large group but you want to involve the larger group and so to get together a few folks who everyone will feel represents them that everyone feels oh this isn't just coming from management we had one of our folks was there at the table yeah, I just wanted, wanted to add to that, which sort of my, my take on that, especially in terms of, you know, te, youth peer leadership is, um, and again, this is sort of more of a personal response. I think um, that young people often like challenging the status quo if that is truly on the table. A uh, quality improvement project mm-hmm. becomes more appealing if they're genuinely empowered and it's not tokenistic and it's not kind of the same old in that way. Um, and that's, it's easier said than done. I think there's a lot of rhetoric of you know, youth and, and Tay involvement that like, exceeds like, really sort of substantive power and influence over projects. Um, so I think if you can like figure out how to do that and figure out how to give people the sense that their involvement is going to change things for them and for other youth in the program, it becomes more appealing. I also think like if you really want a, a, a quality improvement project to work, that you know that youth client buy-in is is absolutely critical. And even in terms of like the honesty of responding and response rates, I think so different if they want the project to happen versus they're just kind of passively going along with it. Mm-hmm. Such a fantastic comment. And of course, the folks, even though they're, that, that I think all the youth in a program feel better about a program knowing that, they're represe- that, that, that there's folks like them represented at the level of program planning and quality improvement sorts of stuff. And I, and I love your idea about uh, engaging them with change, especially at the Tay level. So... I think we are out of time. Yep. 
So thank you all so much. Those are great comments to share. And of course, this will all be gathered after the meeting and the slides will be available to folks and a recording of this and such. So thank you all. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.